You are listening to Radio Free Humanity, the Marxist humanist podcast. My name is Brendan Cooney. And I'm Andrew Kleiman. On today's episode, we interview Gabriel Donnelly about the recent upsurge in union activity in the United States. We talk about possible reasons for this upsurge, how it differs from previous union movements, and some of the pitfalls and contradictions of traditional unions. To hear more episodes of Radio Free Humanity, to read more about the issues discussed, or to join in the conversation, please visit marxisthumanistinitiative.org. You can also make a donation to the podcast there on the website. While our podcast is hosted by MHI, the views expressed by the co-hosts and guests of Radio Free Humanity are their own. They do not necessarily reflect the views and positions of MHI. In just a moment, we'll be talking with Gabriel Donnelly about new union activity in America. But first, as we do in every episode, Andrew and I will take a few minutes to talk about some current events. So this podcast is being released on the two-year anniversary of the January 6th uh, coup attempt. And we're recording this on January 4th, and, but we're going to be talking about the latest revelations from the January 6th committee and what this might mean for Trumpism and democracy in America. Since the January 6th committee ended, uh, they've released a lot of transcripts and other details of their investigations, as well as a final report. And there's been a lot of takeaways stories in the press. Six takeaways from the committee's report, seven takeaways from the document dump. Andrew, you've been reading a lot of these takeaway pieces, and you've come up with Takeaways from the takeaways. Six takeaways yes. from the takeaways. Six takeaways. Six key takeaways from the key takeaways. <laughs> okay. So why don't, you, why don't we start by just you laying out your takeaways? Okay. These are my takeaways from the takeaways. I have not yet read the whole report, much less the you know underlying documentation. Here they are in no order. Number one, Trump was the central figure in the efforts to overturn the election. Number two, the committee referred Trump to the Justice Department for insurrection. You know, if he is convicted of insurrection, that will disqualify him from office and not just for uh, inciting the attack on the Capitol, for, but for doing nothing deliberately for 187 minutes. Number three, big issue, what the committee laid out was a multi-part conspiracy involving everything from uh, a premeditated plan to declare victory uh, on election night, irrespective of the results, up to and including the insurrection on January 6th. Number four, there were very extensive efforts to overturn the results of the election. This was a new revelation about how much Trump and his inner circle did to contact all kinds of people, officials, and so forth, that they were really, really active for a couple of months. Number five, the whole fight over information is just very big here, from the importance of the courts, uh, forcing people to give the committee documents and stuff, to the stonewalling by witnesses saying, I don't recall when it's not plausible, to the Trump world lawyers who were intervening and in Cassidy Hutchinson's case telling her, say you don't recall, to the 30-plus people who just took the Fifth Amendment and re refused to talk to the, the committee at all. And finally, a big takeaway was we got a lot of information that we hadn't had, I think, regarding uh, intelligence 
and stuff concerning the the insurrection. Several different things, but the committee said there was no significant, you know, uh, involvement by Antifa. They found that, like Mark Milley, the general, said, look, everybody knew there was this potential for violence prior to the January 6th itself. And what I found was a very big deal was one of the explanations for for why the uh, the military seems not to have gotten involved is there was confusion as to which side Trump and his people or the other side wanted the military to intervene. So like the point is when when they didn't intervene that may have been as close as they could come to what they thought were disregarding orders from the commander in chief you know if they thought that Trump was behind this they were going to ignore it cuz they didn't want him to get away with it and they didn't want to abet it that's at least a possibility although it's not entirely clear anyway those are my six takeaways takeaways one of the things that seems lacking from the January 6th committee so far from what I've seen is investigation into members of Congress and their involvement in the planning. Yeah, but we know why that there's a, that lack. Uh, why? They didn't show up. There's limited ability to force them to show up and, and talk to the committee. And actually, I don't know if any of them took the Fifth Amendment. I don't think so. I think the committee just realized that it may not have the legal authority to force them. So it didn't even try. It referred people to the, the DOJ. It said, look, these people are really suspicious here because we don't have the information because we were not able to get the information. We can't say they were involved and you should charge them. But hey, you might want to like get that information and charge them. <laughs> that, that's the way I understood what they were doing there. Now, we had this also this big expose from Talking Points memo in December about John Eastman's text messages, right? Yeah. With dozens of members of Congress where they seemed rabid fascist Republicans were very active in trying to plot ways of overthrowing the election. So so there is at least the beginning of like what could be a trail of evidence leading to some kind of prosecution of these characters, but it doesn't seem like they were a major target of the, the committee. Well, Eastman, Eastman. Eastman, but now I'm sorry, I'm talking about like Scott Perry, oh, uh, no, no, Hawley, no, they, like all these right, no, nut they, jobs they, in they, the they, Congress. They, right. They really couldn't get get to those people. As I understand it, they did not think they had a secure legal authority to compel the testimony of these people, and they didn't get cooperation. And so the the people who can do it, that's Jack Smith and the people at the Justice Department. The whole phenomena is curious. The, the only movement we've really seen after two years after a coup is this January 6th committee done by the House, which presented a series of hearings in public that were sort of like stylized true crime podcasts done on national television. But guessing like to what extent the Justice Department is following these same leads, to what extent the Justice Department is doing anything about any of the, the evidence or directions of argumentation developed by the committee is total guesswork because the Justice Department has been pretty opaque. The most significant thing have been the seditious conspiracy charges against Oath Keepers. But it's really hard to say at this point if they are planning to do anything more consequential with Trump or any of the people in his orbit. I mean, you would think at some point that Trump and his orbit are a target. But the, as time keeps ticking, I, I like losing hope that anything's going to happen. 
we talked about the coup attempt in Germany a few weeks ago, where they, you know, rounded up like several dozen people and threw them in jail right away before the coup even happened. Here, it's been two years, and none of the ringleaders have suffered anything, suffered any consequences in the criminal justice system. Some of them have been rewarded politically, and I, it's crazy as it seems to let like coup go unpunished. I can maybe like see that for someone like Merrick Garland and like institutional JO people, maybe it's like unfathomable for them that someone like Trump could be put in an orange jumpsuit with handcuffs, that that's just like not something that's in the cards. Or they're so paranoid about trying to or dot all their I's, cross their T's and seem nonpartisan that they're going to move at such a snail's pace that, that they're never going to get anything done because they're afraid people are going to call them partisan. No other crimes get treated with such care, with such kid gloves. No one else in America who commits serious crimes gets like two years of like hanging out in their mansion waiting for the government to like figure out a case against them. Yeah, I, I don't. What you're saying is possible. Certainly this case is, has taken a long time. And certainly the Justice Department under Garland did not like start at the top with Trump until the, the January 6th committee's uh, hearings kind of made it like palpable, obvious that he was involved in everything, every aspect all, all, all the time. And so this was not the kind of a, a, a conspiracy that you get to by working your way up because it's rather, you know, a hub and spokes. He, he's the hub connected to all of these spokes and that you have to like really start at the top. So I, I think that there was miscalculation on Merrick Garland's part, but who knows? The fact that they are not saying much of anything publicly, to me, it does not mean that there is inaction or slowness of action now. Now that basically Garland has handed it off to Jack Smith from everything I know, and I don't have any like deep knowledge here, just what, what I read and hear, Jack Smith is, is like a go-getter. He's not somebody who is just a paper pusher. He's not just going through the motions, doing his job. He's a very, very aggressive prosecutor. So I don't think we're going to know until we know. I mean, and we may never know, but it's not like a week or two before they decide to indict, uh, we're going to have very good knowledge that that's what, what they're going to decide to do. I think what what they, they do is they, they look at everything and then they say, okay, do we make a decision to do it? Would you make a decision not to do it? Uh, and until then, they don't even know. Unfortunately, they have to have enough, enough ducks lined up before they can say, okay, do we have enough ducks? Do we not have enough ducks? You know, just, it's that kind of thing. They don't communicate in, in, in public. So, I, I mean, I don't know. If, if this thing drags on another six months and we don't get wind of any grand juries and, and so forth, then, I'm, I, then I would agree with, with your assessment. But I, 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 don't, I don't really see it at, at this point. Go either way, but I, I, I think that it'd be very hard not to in, in, indict Trump. I would think so from a rational human being, but I just, I don't understand why it hasn't happened yet. As a parallel example, looking at this issue of Trump stealing classified documents from the government and hiding and keeping them in Mar-a-Lago, anyone else who steals classified documents, they take care of them right away. You know, Bradley Manning, or who is now Chelsea Manning, caught and, and thrown in jail right away. Edward Snowden, you know, had to flee the country 
right away and is like wanted by the government. Donald Trump, they like send nice letters. Can you please give back the classified documents you stole? They let him voluntarily return them. Then they send more letters. Hey, I don't think you gave back all the documents you stole. You know, they, to give him all these passes. Then they come and they raid Mar-a-Lago and take all the documents, but they don't arrest him, even though they catch him with stolen documents in his property. Then they send another letter. Hey, we think we might not have all found all the documents that you stole from the government. You know, and, and it's like you caught him with, I mean, I feel like Trump could like murder somebody. And they could catch him with a gun in his hand. And they would be like, okay, now we're going to, you know, think about investigating Trump for this. It just, well, I, I don't know, understand what else you have to do to get thrown in jail if you're Donald Trump. It's always like, well, okay, well, we don't want to seem partisan. So, I mean, anyone else, if I went into like a government building and stole a bunch of classified documents, I'd be in jail that day. They wouldn't be like letting me hang out in a mansion for you know, months and months while they like think about making a case against me. Right. Let me say something, which is not to excuse any of this, but to give, again, a different interpretation of what might be going on. You don't know, I don't know actually what is going on. But again, I mean, none of this is excusable, but I think a lot of the problem might be that there are still, they know that there are still outstanding documents which are hugely sensitive that could compromise, you know, what they call national security, that could result in informants, maybe intelligence officials getting offed. Lots of heavy shit. Trump still has those documents. They don't have them and they know that they don't have them. Okay, so what do you do in a situation like this? It might be, I, I don't even know the, the ins and outs of the law here, but it might be if they were to indict him right now, they could not pressure for additional documents they could not serve. I, I don't really know, but it, it could be that the threat to so-called national security is what's driving this rather than, oh, he's you know rich and powerful and has a mass base and he's untouchable. It, it could be coming from a wholly different source. Maybe. It's, I mean, this has never happened before. I mean, I mean, what, what you're what you're talking about with you know Bradley Manning, Chelsea Manning, and, and the, these other people, this is you know, there's no comparison with the the ongoing threat to national security. But they were much lesser. That's that's the point. Yeah, in a sense, it's like a, a too big to fail kind of issue. You know, you can you, you can get the little guys and throw them in jail. You can let the little firms collapse. But when you've got AIG, it it, it could be something of that nature. I I, I I actually don't know. A lot of this stuff is opaque to us for the reasons that they want it to be, and it will always be opaque to us, including, you know, the internal deliberations of the DOJ, the, the national security establishment and stuff. We're, we're just never going to know. Well, we're going to have to leave it at that. Up next, our conversation with Gabriel Donnelly about the recent upsurge in union organizing. For our first episode of 2023, we are pleased to welcome Gabriel Donnelly. He is the author of a recent piece in With Sober Senses entitled Workers' Self-Organization, New Unionization Drives and Their Contradictions. Gabriel is a former union organizer and has written a very insightful piece about new and independent unionization drives in the U.S. And we're glad to have him with us today. So welcome, Gabriel. Thank you for having me on. Welcome, Gabe. Uh, really glad to have you uh, on the show. 
Gabe, can you give us a brief overview of what's going on with new unionization drives in the States and why you decided to write about them? I start the article off with a number which comes from the NLRB's own statistics, which is that new union election petition filings, which means, for those that don't know, workplaces that are not unionized, they are filing with the NLRB to have a union election in the workplaces. It went up in the fiscal year 2022 over fiscal year 2021 by 52%. It's a big leap. And so I took a look at this resurgence in organizing and how it's manifested. Where are people organizing? What's led this jump? And also some differences in how they're going about it. And like I say in the title, some of the contradictions that have come to the forefront as a result of this resurgence. As Brendan mentioned, the subtitle of your article is New Unionization Drives and Their Contradictions. And you emphasize this issue of contradictions near the start of the article. You're criticizing a tweet by a prominent member of the Democratic Socialists of America, DSA. What she wrote was, quote, don't fall for the Republican talking point about union bosses as somehow being pro-labor. You can't be pro-worker and anti-union. So... That tweet by her seems like, you know, it could be taken like to be a fairly innocent comment, you know, pro-labor comment. But you say that what she wrote elides the contradictions within the labor movement. What did you mean by that? That tweet was really striking for me, and I thought the rhetoric in it was very striking because it felt emblematic of a lot of thinking that's quite common on the in the DSA and among the Jacobinites. And I want to provide a little context for it that tweet in particular, which is that it was coming in the fallout from Congress's recent vote to suppress the railroad strike. And in particular, it was being given as a defense of DSA members in Congress voting to um, make that suppression possible. And it was also in response to there were a few prominent Republicans who saw the, the way the wind was blowing and knew how the vote was going to go. And saw a potential for a, you know, an easy PR win, uh, an, an easy way to seem like they were a pro-worker by issuing a protest vote and making a few public statements that make it seem like they are on the side of workers. And I agree with this you. Would be Josh Hawley and Marco Rubio too would be yeah. one I thought was fairly emblematic. And I I agree with you, Andrew, that in the sense that it is saying this comment is, is trying to take a stab at the emptiness and, and sincerity of, of those sorts of remarks from uh, Republicans. Yeah, it's fairly innocent. That's true that they're not actually interested in being pro-worker and their anti-union stance isn't actually principled, right? But that's a, you know, that's an easy layup that I, I don't, I'm not going to give any free points out for pointing out that Marco Rubio or Josh Haley are insincere. I think we all know that. I think we got to pull the context out even a little more because this vote was defended because they said that union leaders endorsed the vote and encouraged the DSA members of Congress to make this vote. And again, like I said in the article, that completely elides the contradictions within the labor movement. It elides the reality of what happened with that vote, which is that the union leadership, the elected union officials negotiated a contract that they brought to the membership and the membership voted it down which then opens the possibility of strike. And then this led to this congressional vote. So to pretend like there wasn't a conflict between rank and file and leadership in this case, and to pretend like a union is is one solid block, which is what I think this, this rhetoric is getting at, which is 
to try and lump in any discussion of a split between rank and file and leadership as being a Republican talking point. I think it's it's a really shallow understanding of this situation and I think any situation in the modern labor movement. And, and the reality is the reason the Republicans like Halley and Rubio jumped on this opportunity is because they're recognizing this weakness. They're recognizing this disconnect between the union leadership and the rank and file in this situation. And they saw it as a chance to get some easy PR against those who want to collapse them into one solid block. So ignoring the distinction between union leadership and the rank and file collapsing this distinction, is this just an oversight on the part of the DSA Jacobin crowd, or do they have like an interest in erasing that distinction? I absolutely think they have an interest in collapsing the distinction. And I think it's a collapse that gets very absurd. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's defense was that Teamsters local leadership encouraged her to make the vote. Uh, this was the Teamsters local that wasn't even involved in this. They weren't voting on a contract, but because some elected union official said, yeah, it's a good idea to vote for this, suddenly it has this, this stamp of approval, and so it's pro-worker. And I think that it is part and parcel of, of the whole approach to politics, to viewing working power is just if it has the stamp of these elected officials, it's pro-worker is, is part of their, their thinking. And I think it takes them to some absurd places. To me, it's emblematic of the substitutionist nature of these people's politics, you know, in general. So, you know, that term pro-labor, well, there's two labors. There's the, the labor of the, the union leadership and there's the labor of the people who actually do the labor. You, you substitute the one for the other, you know, it's like so the, the views and the pronouncements of the leadership, that substitutes for the workers uh, on the trains, on the shop floor, whatever it might be. And we know that, you know, in general, we've been covering and talking about it a lot these people substitute like the left for the, the working class, for the masses, for the people struggling for freedom. Uh, instead of talking about regular people gaining power and taking control of their own lives, they substitute for that, that they're all in favor of is power for the left. So I think it's part and parcel of, of, of a more general problem, not to say that it's, you know, you're not wrong about the specific, but I think it goes way broader in terms of the way these people relate to, to, to the world and to politics. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think that it's if these unions are only their leadership in anyone's understanding, then that is a huge oversight that ignores the movement and activity within at their own peril. And it will lead them into making these compromises that have been like this recent suppression of the railroad strike that uh, is rightly being excoriated by the rank and file of, the, of these these unions that were totally had their voice totally suppressed by people who claim to be representative of them and then turn around and say, we did it for you. You know, we had the stamp from your leadership. <laughs> it's absurd. We should also maybe point out to listeners that you wrote an earlier, a piece earlier this year in With Sober Senses about the Amazon workers union drive. In, in both that piece and in the piece we're discussing today, um, are, are any of your reflections influenced by your own personal experiences working in the labor movement? Yes, I would definitely say so. I worked as a labor, labor union employee for about two years, and then I spent a recent chunk of eight months as a worker involved in one of these new organizing campaigns that have arisen in the past fiscal year. And then beyond even that, I had family who were very involved in uh, a reform movement in a major union and on a, actually on a, on a national level. And so 
I think I have a little bit of a perspective on reform movements, rank and file, reform activity, union staff, and and then being a worker in an organizing campaign now a little bit, but you know the anecdotal fallacy and all that. But what I would say that I bring to my personal experience in that is that I really do see from having moved in these worlds and seen the energy that goes into something like, for example, a rank and file reform campaign, people who are in unions that are bureaucratic, corrupt, sometimes flagrantly so, and are trying to replace corrupt officials, trying to democratize procedures and see the, the real energy that goes into those and the time and effort and how it can it can really be, as I, I put it in, in the articles, it, it can be a real treadmill. It can be a real just sap for energy that could maybe go elsewhere that can can have great results as we're seeing now in the united auto workers they've had some huge wins for democratizing their union elections and procedures and have now replaced some uh, officials that did not expect to be replaced anytime soon in any elections because of that those are huge and inspiring victories and energizing but it can also be a huge sap that goes for all that energy and uh, can burn people out it has made me very cynical about the state of modern American trade unionism. And I think that cynicism is why when I was looking at this resurgence and I wanted to even not even thinking about really writing something big on it, but I was just looking at all the press on it and following it because it, even with that cynicism, I was excited by it and interested in it. And I saw a couple threads that even with all the press and even some radical leaning press or, or really good shoes on the ground reporting on it, they were missing some things. I thought they were missing the fact that there's this strand within this resurgence that that also is a little cynical, is, is more pragmatic about the realities of the American trade unionist situation seen than any recent wave of organizing has been. And that is something I I think I noticed perhaps because of that personal experience and I wanted to zoom in on and tease out a little more than I had seen done anywhere else. In your latest article, Gabe, one of the recurring themes is that the new unionization drives that you're discussing are battling against what you call twin gulags. Now, gulag is a term from, like, it's the Russian labor camps under Stalin, right? That metaphor could seem rather harsh. So why do you use it? So it's a metaphor I, I stole. I, I nicked it, and I have the quote in the article from Richard Trumka. He was a United Mine Workers president and then the AFL-CIO president for many years until his recent death. He looked like John Candy with a mustache. If you ever saw a John Candy with a mustache guy talking about the AFL-CIO on, on television, that was probably Richard Trumka. President of the AFL-CIO, he was sort of labor bureaucracy personified despite his affable Midwestern persona. But one of the things I was also looking at in the article is, is the state of the NLRB, um, which is, for those that don't know, it's the National Labor Relations Board created and powered by the Wagner Act in America. And it's what union elections are done through and, and pretty much anything involving unions largely in the country, you're going through the NLRB. And I was looking at um, the relationship with this resurgence to the NLRB and also the fact that Later this month, in January, the far-right Supreme Court will be looking at a case that has a possibility of, of gutting the Wagner Act and, and gutting the power of, of the NLRB. And while looking into that, I found this quote from Richard Trumka in the 80s, before his ascension, on the possibility of, of such a ruling. He was considering, you know, if the Supreme Court ever did, you know, make a ruling like the one that they may make this month. He said that he would welcome this kind of ruling because labor law and the NLRB as it exists currently in his terminology has become a gulag. I thought 
that's really dramatic and it does communicate something of, of his own feeling that it was it's a a trap of uh, of interacting with even then even the mid 80s a bureaucracy that was underfunded understaffed very slow to respond and that perhaps to get rid of it and break out of it even though it seems writing might be the best thing to do and um I thought it communicated that, but I also thought it would be a little cheeky to steal Trumpka's own terminology and apply it also to the labor infrastructure he sat atop, which is why I use the term like twin gulags, because you have these two big bureaucracies that exist. Well, one quite small one, that's the problem, which is the NLRB. It's very small, slow, understaffed, and very frustrating for workers to engage with often. And then you also have the pre-existing large bureaucratic trade unions that, um, like I said before, can be a sap for energy and when it comes to trying to reform them and trying to get them to to move. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I thought that was a really interesting comment from Trumpka because it's not just a criticism of the NLRB for being slow and bureaucratic and a lot of times influenced by the people who are put in, in control of it by the president. And if you got like, you know, Trump, other Republicans in particular, but not exclusively, they're coming up the works. But what Trump is saying is, is more than that. I think you're saying it's that to be caught up, to have your struggle kind of managed by this bureaucracy and these rules of the game, you're playing a game that you're bound to lose, I think is what he was trying to get at. Yeah? Right. He, right. And he, he explicitly actually goes on. I'm, I actually can't remember if I if I quote this section in, in the part that I quote from, but he goes on and very shortly after in the piece that he wrote in the mid-80s where he, he uses that term to say that another big reason to go is it's not, there aren't juries to appeal to. You're appealing right. to, to a board. You're appealing to appointed agents and that he would rather have these fights of labor law out in public with juries appears and not behind these closed board hearings. And just to, to follow up on what you're saying on appointments, there, it was a very common to be said in uh, October, November, and December of 2020 that I heard when I was organizing for um, people to say, oh, we're not going to file this yet. Can you guys wait around to file these charges against your employers for doing this heinous thing to you or that heinous thing, or wait around on filing for this election? Because we know Biden's coming in now, and he's going to appoint a more friendly board, and we have a might we might have a better chance then. So can you put a hold on that? Because right now we're probably going to lose in front of the Trump board. I, I think that that this is actually really important for a certain segment of the population who knows some labor history but doesn't know it from the inside, wherein the Wagner Act and all of that stuff from the 1930s. Those were viewed as major major victories for workers, you know, and in a sense they were. But by incorporating workers' struggles into the normal business of business, you know, and the normal business of capitalism, they get co-opted. What is a victory turns into its opposite. Workers have a right to protest against unfair labor practices. But what's the downside to that? that the only legitimized way for them to protest against the unfair labor practices is not directly, but to go through this machinery of the NRB. You know, I think Gabe is is getting to that. And what's interesting to me is like, Trumpka seems to have like, not only been aware of it, but willing to speak about that facet of it publicly as well. Yeah, it's important to remember that the NLRB existing, the Wagner Act passing, was a hard-won victory. It was fought for tooth and nail. 
And as it exists, it, it can be satisfying for some workers to get to slap bosses on the wrist for some really heinous union busting. But there's also the reality that, and here I'll, I'll, I'll use an anecdote from a, a time I was organizing where there was a manager employing really heinous illegal um, union busting tactics. Uh, they were threat making threats of deportation. They were making threats of, of violence. And it was difficult to get the people who were receiving those threats to say anything about it because they were afraid that to go and speak to someone from the federal government would mean they were going to get deported first off. And then at one point, a worker said something to me that really stuck with me. It was basically along the lines of, you're acting like we're going to empower ourselves. But now you're saying the only way we can defend ourselves from this that we clearly recognize is wrong is to go and ask for a favor from these board agents and board employees that will then do it for us. How is that in any way empowering? We don't feel any stronger in being able to stand up for ourselves in this workplace that was horrific. They were really being horribly mistreated. And we were selling this narrative that you're going to win a union and empower yourself. And she sort of threw it back in my face rightly, I think. Well, are we? Because it seems like the people who are going to be able to stop them from doing bad things aren't us. It's board agents that we have to go and sit and testify to for half a day and miss work. The whole machinery of the Wagner Act, National Labor Relations Board, and all of that, that that's a gulag in the sense of it's confining, it's a trap. That's what evidently Trump meant. That's what, what you mean. Is the labor bureaucracy that you regard as this other gulag? Is it a gulag in the same sense? Do you regard it as a trap or, or, or what? I definitely think it's a trap for energy because so much then becomes caught up in the fight of replacing individual bureaucrats. But I also don't want to simplify the rank and file fights that go on to being that narrow minded because there are quite encompassing and hopeful and, and um, intelligent, savvy rank and file fights going on. But their energy is also trapped in the sense that the first thing they have to do is they're now they have to devote all this time into replacing the infrastructure if they're pushing for big democratizing initiatives. And then, you know, there's also just the reality that as it exists under the Wagner Act, that what the labor bureaucrats are doing is that they're negotiating for labor peace every few years. They're fighting for contracts that just just by the nature of the way that the unions have been going in larger realities than, than the bureaucrats are just getting whittled away and having to convince their membership to accept these compromises so they don't get replaced. And in that sense, it's also by nature a sort of compromising position, even if there are huge democratizing initiatives done and they're replaced by responsive and energized members of, of the union who take on these elected positions, they then now have to often are forced to become salesmen for compromised contracts that, that just aren't able to win what's desired from the rank and file because of the nature of, of how union fights go on under the Wagner Act. So it is, I think it's their linked, but I should say this about the Wagner Act as well, which is that the Wagner Act is, is very similar in how it's discussed to how uh, Roe v. Wade is discussed in in one sense, which is that people often mistake Roe v. Wade as being the case law for more abortion in this country before Dobbs, when in fact it was Casey, which severely curtailed Roe. And the Wagner Act is similar. People often talk about the Wagner Act without discussing the fact that the Wagner Act was severely curtailed by Taft-Hartley about two decades after the Wagner Act was passed. And, you know, under Taft, there's a ban on solidarity strikes, boycotts, all these major features of the uh, 20s, 30s, and 40s labor union movement are completely made impossible 
by the Taft-Hartley Act. It also went so far as to ban members of the Communist Party from holding elected officials, which led to the Communist purges in the 50s and, and so on. But that, that right. is... Right. So, so, so that everybody understands what you're saying. What do you mean by a solidarity strike and a boycott? And how does the outlawing of them uh, hurt workers compared to the pre-Taft-Hartley situation? Under Taft-Hartley, under the legalization of unionization as it exists in this country and union activity as it exists in this country, you have now the legal strike. And the legal strike is now severely limited in what workers are actually able to strike for. And withholding labor is you know, the, one of the, the power of, of the worker in the, the workforce. And that is severely curtailed. So a solidarity strike was very common that the workers not actually fighting for the contract in question or the gains in question go and strike in solidarity with other workers who are fighting for that. Boycott is another one that's banned. And, and I know for me that I have been involved in a couple leafleting campaigns of union busting business with workers who are working at the union bus and business coming on their off hours and handing out leaflets. And I've had to tell more than a few, you know, you cannot say <laughs> anything like, don't go in there. You shouldn't support this business you should, because that can get the whole campaign in big trouble. We you can't try to encourage people to withhold their dollars. The union can't encourage people from withholding their dollars from, from a business under Taft-Hartley. Well, let's see if we, we got this straight. You can strike about conditions in your own workplace. You can't strike about conditions in somebody else's workplace. That's the solidarity strike. That's outlawed. Right. Back when I was young, the uh, United Farm Workers had huge nationwide campaigns to boycott lettuce, to boycott grapes. Then there was, you know, in the textiles, I think North Carolina against J.P. Stevens. This is the, the Norma Ray uh, battle. I mean, big nationwide consumer boycotts. Those boycotts themselves are not illegal. But right. But when the, you know, the, the, the UFW in, in California tells people, you know, don't buy lettuce, don't buy grapes, that was illegal? The UFW is legally able to use solidarity boycotting. They are able to encourage boycotting to aid their strikes because the UFW is not covered by the Wagner Act. Because it's an agriculture. Yes. And the UFW, just for those who don't know, but this is a one of those big labor history one-on-one things you learn on the first day, but the agriculture and domestic work are not covered by the Wagner Act. Subsequently, other states sometimes have, have changed that in a state-by-state -state basis, but initially the Wagner Act that passes does not include agricultural workers, domestic workers, and there's no rationale for that beyond racism. It was a compromise to get it through the Dixiecrats in Congress at the time who did not want to raise the possibility of unionizing largely black domestic and agricultural workers in the South. Hey, we're going to return to this conversation in just a moment. But first, as we do in every episode, we're going to take just a few minutes to hear from Angie Clard, Organizational Secretary of Marxist Humanist Initiative, the organization which sponsors this podcast. Marxist Humanist Initiative, or MHI, aims to contribute to the transformation of this capitalist world by projecting, developing, and concretizing the philosophy of Karl Marx and its further development in the Marxist humanism articulated by Raya Donayevskaya. The ongoing COVID-19 pandemic and today's many other social, political, and economic crises make this a moment to engage people in discussion of these ideas. In the U.S., we are faced with the threat of Trumpism triumphing in all-out authoritarianism 
extinguishing our right to carry on these discussions. Yet at the same moment, the multiracial movement for black lives has spread to every corner of the country and the world, launching a flood of activism and new ideas that deepen the concept of freedom. MHI is dedicated to the task of proving theoretically that an alternative to capitalism is possible. We are distinguished by our economic analyses in which we do not merely assert but demonstrate that the only opposite to the current world economic system is its abolition and replacement with one not based on the production of, quote, value, close quote. Because capitalism cannot be fundamentally reformed, attempts to reform it lead to an intensification of state capitalism, not to socialism. We are not a political party, nor are we trying to lead the masses who will form their own organization and whose emancipation must be their own act. But we have seen that spontaneous actions alone are insufficient to usher in a new society. We seek a new unity of philosophy and organization in which mass movements striving for freedom lay hold of Marxist philosophy of revolution and recreate society on its basis. Our ideas and actions, as well as our structure and rules, are guided by the interests of working people and freedom movements of people of color, LGBTQ people, other minorities, women, youth, and all those around the world who are struggling for self-determination in order to freely develop their own human natures. We have no interests separate and apart from theirs. To this end, we open our website to the widest possible dialogue with people around the world. We intend to practice as well as espouse a two-way road between our organization and people outside it as essential to developing a single dialectic in the relationship of theory to practice and as the way to assure the survival of Marxist humanism. Please join us. I think we should move to discussing the differences between old unionism and these new unionization drives that are the focus of your paper. Um, what what are the significant differences? So I want to steal for the answer to this a little bit from labor journalist Stephen Greenhouse, who I quote in this article, and just with what I'm pointing to, and then I'll elaborate and go a little different. But he points to a difference in tactics as being one of the major differences, and he points to worker-to-worker organizing. And so to go again back to my personal experience, when I was working in unions, I was a labor organizer, meaning I would hang out outside the shop and try to advocate for joining the pre-existing union to people leaving for their lunch break or whatever. Or I would be assault. I'd get a job at a non-union place and I'm getting paid by the union to work there and work from the inside. These campaigns, many of them, at least initially, are not being run by staff, but by people in the shop who are talking to and organizing each other. It's not new. I, I want to clarify that that's not new, but it hasn't been seen on this this scale and with this much success in some time. The other difference, and Greenhouse again indicates this as well, is that this resurgence is actually doing organizing and increasing organizing. Like I said, it's that 52% statistic from the NLRP is kind of the whole story because and I also should note that that number is not enough, um, and the numbers of growth that we've seen in union membership in the past year are not enough to stanch the bleeding as union membership continues its decline. That is important because union membership is declining precipitously. I do note in the article that this year, the lowest union membership density since it's been measured was reached in America. But there is organizing efforts being done, and unorganized workers are being organized. 
as Greenhouse notes and what I in what I quote from him, there are many huge unions with big resources and deep pockets that aren't really putting any effort into organizing unorganized workers. They're just not it's just not something they're putting their resources in. And so these unorganized workers have taken it upon themselves, in some cases, just do it themselves. And that's two big differences between what's what's been the trend and what's been common for, for big pre-existing unions and this recent resurgence. You write in the piece, quote, what is so exciting about the resurgent union movement is that workers are not sitting on their hands while facing political deadlock, trade union stagnancy, and the rise of Trumpism. While everyone else twiddles their thumbs, they are taking inspiration from the past, close quote. But you also point to aspects of the past that aren't so inspirational, things that are warning signs. Does the contradictory character of the past figure into the thinking and activity of the new union movement? So I I don't want to be too simplistic with this because there is definitely some engagement with this question going on. However, it is limited, but there is some engagement. In a recent interview, uh, with a worker leading an independent union campaign, he told me that he was trying to take inspiration from the trade unions that worked with Dr. King and being honest in his organizing about the hist- the real history of, of racism in the American labor movement. And that's not insignificant because there are a lot of people in the movement who just have rose-colored glasses on in that regard. That being said, as much as there is inspiration taken from the past and there is often a real sober appraisal of the state of the present unions in some regards. I've not seen enough consideration of how to avoid going down a similar path. Chris Smalls, the president of the Amazon Labor Union, rightfully pointed out that established unions failed to organize Amazon and that that indicates that Amazon workers should try to build something of their own. But what assurances are there that the Amazon Labor Union will not transform into its opposite and become as bureaucratized and disconnected as any of these pre-existing unions. I think it's important to remember that the Teamsters reform candidates got into national office in the 90s, and many of them were <laughs> implicated in corruption almost as bad as the guys that the mafia controlled you know, in the 70s and 80s. So I'd love to see more thinking and discussion on this in the movement. Um, but I can't say that it exists to any real extent right now. Well, what do you think it would take for the labor movement to not develop into its opposite, to not become you know, corporatist, class compromising, bureaucratic, et cetera? That's a great question. And if I, if I really knew, I'd definitely be out there telling everybody. Because but, but I, I do think it, it needs to be worked out. And it needs to be worked out in a sense of not just getting into this game, which I, I point to in the article, this game of, of just playing around with new forms and new tactics and thinking that that will solve the whole problem because as exciting as the worker-to-worker organizing is or the creation of new independent unions is, and they are, that's not going to solve it. There has to be some real deep thinking done beyond just saying we have an exciting new method of organizing, we have an exciting new union that we're starting from scratch about how this can be prevented. and. That's, that's going to take a lot of work, and it's not going to be easy, but I think it really needs to be done. Otherwise, this resurgence is going to run aground just as much as similar exciting moments have been. And it won't, just, it won't be the beginning of something new. It'll just be a blip. Yeah, I think this is a very important point of yours, the second gulag. And what you're saying is it's not a crisis of leadership. It, you know, in the trade union movement, you take – 
those leaders, you get rid of them, you put in the new leaders. That's not a solution. You know, and you point, I think, very rightly to the the Teamsters. I mean, in, in talking about what traps people's energies, I mean, for how long were people struggling for, you know, the Democratic Union and the Teamsters? You had, like, rank-and-file truckers and, and whatnot and all kinds of activists, big movement, and, and they get a president who's very uh, closely aligned with them. And like you say, he's... Uh, it, it, it basically is corrupt as they come. So, I mean, what was it? Decades of, of work kind of like just disappear, right? I, I would like to explore this a, a little bit with you. What are like sort of the structural problems that make it that you can't just solve the problems of the unions by replacing the bad leaders with the good leaders? You seem pretty sure. Because it's not just bad leadership. The reality is that in the same way that as we started at the beginning of this talk, when we discussed the suppression of the railroad strike, that there's this substitutionism engaged in by this type of thinking practiced by the DSA and the Jacobinites of the union leadership for the entire membership. The union membership in it, the union leadership and its engagement with the membership. I also try to encourage a kind of passivity that you don't need to think about your place in the workplace, your place in production. That's for us to do. All you have to do is clock in and out, vote for us every four years, and then vote for the contract that we hand down to you. And that's encouraged by the union leadership that in many cases they run uncontested. Many of these unions, there isn't actual conversation going on between leadership and the vast majority of people that are paying dues, the rank and file. There isn't this imagined, what's imagined and often pitched is there's this dialogue and a responsiveness, but that doesn't really seem to be going on except for the few times every few years when they're negotiating their contracts and then they need them legally to vote on these contracts. And so then there's some engagement. Otherwise, the leadership is as disconnected from the rank and file as the rank and file are from them. And it's an estrangement of decision making and thinking about the realities of work and what people want out of their job and what their relationship is to the people they work side by side that, as I said, they used to encourage passivity and say, just let us worry about that. Just let us worry about that. And often it can blow up in their face. I mean, I think the leadership of the railroads were surprised that some of the rank and file rejected this contract because they assumed that they would go along with the contract that they were given. And that can happen too, where when these confrontations happen at these contract votes and they're forced into dialogue with each other, the disconnect, what I call in the title, the contradictions within the movement are brought to the fore. But I don't think I've answered your question at all here. Well, just because there's a union doesn't mean that the basic class antagonisms have been resolved in the workplace. It's just that they've been displaced and organized in a certain way that allows production to continue. And the union sort of takes up this role of regulating the, the class conflict or being part of the system of like regulating class conflict and negotiating like a class compromise rather than being some institution that exists just to like further the interest of workers as a goal in and of itself, rather than focusing on strikes and other things that are like part of the collective ability of workers to withhold their labor and to pressure capital and to build solidarity and, and build their like uh, notions of freedom and 
power. This class struggle is like funneled into an organization which is sort of substitutionist and which relies on uh, this legalistic process um, that whose goal is to like continue capitalism as it is. Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely it. And, and that's why it's one of the twin gulags along with the NLRB in a, a recent conversation with a, a previously mentioned interview with a worker, he was discussing his frustration with, with the NLRB in, in response time and not ruling on the side of the workers and, and said something along the lines of, you know, what does this exist to do for me other than to stop me from striking and try and, you know, prevent my ability to strike? And the unions often serve a similar role. And an interesting part of this resurgence, I think, is that they've lost their biggest pitch their biggest sell, which is that for all of that, which has always been true, I think, all of everything you just said, Brendan, has always been true about the role they serve in as being um, in, in policing the self-activity of, of their membership in many cases. They've always, at least many of them, have had the argument of, hey, well, we won this, this, and this in the contract, and the, a union job's a good job. And that reality has really changed. The contracts have been whittled away and whittled away and whittled away until they're I keep returning to the the railroad unions because it's on the mind and it's in the news but they were able to win you know great salaries for those those workers the that's something that everybody's harped on including the president himself saying oh we got these guys great salaries but that's not what they were the rank of file really wanted they wanted to be able to have sick days and that was their big ask that was what they wanted and the unions were unable to win that in their contract negotiations management was not willing to relinquish that they were not willing to change how they schedule they were not willing to change how they manage their workers they didn't want to concede that and more and more and more in these contract negotiations over the past 20 30 years they've been whittled away until i think some people walk around kind of with this antiquated fantasy of there's good union jobs union jobs are still better on the whole the non-union ones, but they don't have this sell anymore of saying, well, yes, you know, we're the arbiter, we're this, we're that, but they're not that great. Their biggest sell is is like, we get you a discount for your glasses. They have a great lens crafter discount with us. Because not everybody knows this, particularly people outside of the United States, what Gabriel was talking about with sick days, sick leave, he's not exaggerating. It's literally the case that People in the rail, railroad industry get zero paid sick leave. If they get sick one day, they are not paid for it. I mean, even in the United States, which is kind of like really like bad with worker protections, even in the, in the United States, that's almost unheard of. The, the Democrats vote to break the strike in Congress. The president's all big in strike breaking. And you tell us that there are DSA members of Congress who were involved in, in breaking the strike and telling the workers they had to go back to work. Um, Gabriel, your article uh, draws a link between this recent wave of unionization drives and recent mass movements, in particular the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, can you talk a little bit about that and also why that was interesting to you to talk about in this article? I come from a, a union family. That's why I got into it. That's why I started working in that world working class union family. And, and many people who work for unions and work as union organizers are like that. And they're very sincere and they may even be politically sound, and, and, but they get into the union world because critical though they may be, they ultimately kind of drink the union Kool-Aid. They think there's 
something that can be done here and, and that uh, somehow just from organizing more people, they'll have some way of solving all these big issues we've touched on structurally and, and otherwise that need a lot of serious thought and work. They just sort of take it as a given that eh, more growth and more democratizing initiatives and maybe better leadership and we'll be able to fix that. The energized and moving and organizing themselves politically aware workers that are coming into this activity are not doing so from nostalgia for old unionism or because they come from an old trade union family. I mean, I keep citing this interview I did recently with a worker, but he said most of the young people involved in the campaign didn't have parents who were in unions, didn't even have grandparents who were in unions. There was no reference point for them. And if they're being awakened, as I suspect, and I think I can prove many of them are by Black Lives Matter and other recent political struggles, they're not coming into it like I said, having drunk the Union Kool-Aid, and that may be why they're so willing to sort of soberly face the state of trade unionism as it exists. Just now, and also in your piece, you mentioned that one of these drives, these union drives happened at Lowe's, the giant national hardware store. That's a pretty big victory. Absolutely. And workers who were in, a, who were in that Lowe's organizing themselves and putting in work and making leaflets and speaking to each other and educating each other, the moment the company finds out, as they did, they're now faced with union-busting advisors that come in and are being paid, in some cases, $3,000 a day to walk around the store and browbeat the employees and put up literature and, and show very well-funded, glossy, anti-union footage, videos, and so on in, in mandatory meetings. And so for those Lowe's workers in New Orleans to go against the company on their own, it took a lot of gumption, and the same for the Philadelphia Home Depot workers. And when I spoke to the president of the Lowe's union, he specifically said to me that he's been thinking about something like getting involved in a union fight ever since Black Lives Matter in 2020, because it was for him, it became for him the constant thinking about how do I fight for these principles in every avenue of my life, including at work? What is what is the significance for you of the fact that these these struggles are, are linked? That Black Lives Matter uprising of uh, two two and a half years ago energized people to organize lows, uh, whatever it might be. I think it is really significant. I think it's really exciting, and it's moving beyond a sort of siloing of of issues and of, of struggles and of thinking of how can we continue this fight that we might have gone to a march for and sign a petition or we believe in the workplace. I think that's very significant. And then what I was saying before about coming from outside the union sphere and engaging with it, I think can lead to, to this more sobriety in terms of appraising it, which is why I think part of the reason those workers might have said, eh, I don't know if we need to go with a pre-existing union. We want this to be for us. Um, can you can you spell that out? What's the connection between Black Lives Matter and this union being for us? Well, in a large sense, it's because in New Orleans, uh, it's a large black population. The working class is largely black, and the Lowe's Workers Union is a largely black workplace. So, trying to fight for representation and a little better treatment on the job, I view that as being part and a continuation of this earlier fight against. Uh, anti-black priest brutality. We've, we talked about this several times in the podcast, but your observation that people's participation and the 
George Floyd protests was inspiring for them to get involved with organizing union drives is an example that really flies in the face of the criticism of so-called identity politics that Jacobin magazine was putting out even up to like the the day that uh, George Floyd was killed. They were putting out this line that getting involved with what they call like culture war. We don't need a culture war. We need a class yeah, war. They, they, there was this really clear distinction that culture war issues, as they called them, were distractions that kept people from thinking about class. But we see in the example you're showing that it can have actually the opposite effect, that one freedom struggle can feed into other areas of freedom struggles, and that in many ways, like overcoming and fighting against racism is like an important part of also even starting to see issues of class. And that, so this, this arbitrary distinction between the two is really doesn't make any sense. Doesn't really, doesn't, it doesn't exist in reality as most people experience these things. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And I mentioned this in the article, and I think it's a little silly, but I, I've seen it a few places in, in terms of reporting on one aspect of this resurgence, which is that something that's been noted again and again demographically about these workers leading these unionization campaigns is that they're very young. They're very young workers. Um, and so they're largely from Generation Z. So there's sort of this, like I said, a little bit corny term of Generation U because they're so involved in unions and so pro-union. But um, this is a Generation Z, these young people now entering the workforce in force and have been, in some cases have been in the workforce for five or six years now. They grew up during not just um, the several iterations of Black Lives Matter and were involved in that in large numbers, but also things like March for Our Lives, struggles against Trumpism, so on. They're activated in large ways politically. Their political awakenings are starting in what might be colored as culture war issues. And now here they are leading this resurgence. And then for a more specific linking of the Black Lives Matter protests and, and the this resurgence, I can't believe it slipped my mind, but I would be remiss not to mention the fact that the Amazon Labor Union, which I cite their, their victory as being a big inspiring flashpoint for this, that starts organizing during COVID. And then it starts really being in dialogue with right around COVID, George Floyd and the George Floyd uprising, because the Amazon Labor Union, Staten Island workers and the worker leaders there, that was largely black. And they were facing mistreatment in COVID. They were at risk getting COVID and they were, they were facing racism. The corporate response from Amazon, there was some leaks from Amazon executives using some real I mean, racist terminology to describe these workers for daring to try and form a union. They called them thugs. They called them inarticulate. And so that fight heating up and eventually leading to a victory was right at the same time as there was a massive dialogue in this country about black dignity and about racism. And these workers were fighting for their dignity and their to be treated like humans in these Amazon warehouses. They have such a, such a larger percentage of, of accidents on the job and injuries on the job than in similarly sized warehouses because of the level of speed up and the level of pressure that are put on these workers. They're not treated like human beings. And these black workers in Staten Island were not treated like human beings. And they were referred to racistly. They were put at risk for COVID. And it's all happening right as that, that fight takes off. That's not a coincidence. And they wouldn't say it was. They would view it and have described it as being very much linked. Hey, that's all the time we have for this episode of Radio Free Humanity. If you like the podcast, please do stop by MarxistHumanistInitiative.org to listen to other episodes and to read more about these issues and others. 
As always, if you like the podcast, we encourage you to write to us, to comment and rate the podcast, and of course, to share with all your friends and enemies. 